May I speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It's funny what you remember sometimes, isn't it? I remember she had a bracelet made of silver coins which kept catching the sunlight so that it seemed to burn her wrist. But I should begin at the beginning. My name is Josiah and I'm a scribe, a member of the Sanhedrin here in Jerusalem, the Jewish Synod. God has been good to me, truly. I marvel at the responsibility that's been entrusted to me. Since a young man, I've been devout. I'm blessed with a strong sense of God, of the presence of God, more than that, of the steadfast love and tender mercy of God. I can't explain why. I didn't come to this experience by searching for it in any way. It, it just came to me. I suppose God just came to me. Anyway, this sense of, of connection, of, of relationship to the almighty and living God, I, I suppose that's the heart of our faith, the very thing out of which we Jews try to live day by day. And in God's gracious providence, I've become a member of the Sanhedrin, governing and overseeing the life of the people of God. It's a role I've had for 20 years, in fact. My goodness, how is that possible? But I didn't set out to tell you about myself. I really want to tell you about a woman called Miriam and about a man called Jesus, Jesus from Nazareth, and about the impact he's had on my life. So let me give you some background first of all. You see, there's been a preacher in Israel the last year or two who's been gathering a following. He's Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He's been preaching and teaching and making a name for himself but sometimes at the expense of the religious authorities. So one day last year, I was commissioned as a member of the Sanhedrin to go and discover what he was about. What did he intend? What was his purpose? This Jesus, is he a good thing or a bad thing? And I went with an open mind, actually. But to be honest, some of my colleagues had already made up their minds, and they had made a plan what they intended was an entrapment, actually a double entrapment. On this particular day, it was a Wednesday as a matter of fact, I was asked to be part of something which I knew from the beginning was just not right. The plan was this. There's a woman in our community, her name is Miriam, who has a reputation, how shall I put this, for availability. So my colleagues made plans for this double entrapment. The first part of the plan was to surprise Miriam and her latest partner, red-handed in the act of adultery. And then secondly, to surprise Jesus of Nazareth by asking him without warning to pass judgment on the woman. It certainly wasn't fair on her, and it really wasn't fair on him either. But anyway, we did it. Part one was easy enough to achieve. We know Miriam, we know her habits and her routine, and it wasn't hard to interrupt her at the opportune moment. Right when we knew Jesus would be in the temple precincts teaching, we were able to catch her and her lover in the very act, in the very act of adultery, just as we had hoped to do. But again, just think about that. We members of the Sanhedrin we spiritual leaders, how could we have hoped for someone to sin so that we could catch them in sin 
what sort of hypocrisy is that? But it got worse. You see, when we barged in on that couple, we paid no attention to the man. He was of no use to us and therefore of no interest to us. In fact, I've no idea who he was. He ran off gathering his clothes as he ran, and we let him go. But Miriam we grabbed. Just as she was, disheveled and half-naked, we dragged her forcibly outside, pushing and pulling her through the streets of the city to the temple. But the alarm bell in my head was ringing loud and clear now. I knew we were using her just as much as that man had done. And did the sin of that man not matter also? Why did we pick on Miriam? Setting up the next part of the plan was as easy as achieving the first part because Jesus' habits and routines were as predictable as Miriam's. Just as we knew where she would be and what she would be doing, so we knew where he would be and what he would be doing. And sure enough, there he was, sitting in the temple courtyard, teaching the people. He must have heard our commotion from a distance because on the way from Miriam's house to the temple, we gathered quite a crowd, all jeering at her. And when we rounded the last corner and drew near to him, the crowd around him parted and someone gave Miriam a hearty shove so that she fell to the ground at his feet and then we hauled her back up so that she was standing there in front of him. And that's when I noticed her bracelet glinting in the sun. I remember that vividly and just how terrified she looked. Then one of our group, one who apparently had no misgivings about what we were doing, said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. I noticed how my colleague chose not to use her name. He knew it all right, but at this moment she was just this woman. He reminded Jesus that in the law it is commanded to stone those who commit adultery. So what do you say, my colleague asked Jesus? So that was the second attempt at entrapment. You see, Jesus has a reputation for interpreting the law very freely. Take the Sabbath, for example. It is said that he has performed healings on the holy day, and most of us would say that's forbidden. So we knew his instinct would be to spare this woman and hoped once for all to expose him before the people as a false teacher, a traitor to the law of Moses. Well, he didn't answer at once. He looked at his questioner for a moment with something like sadness in his eyes, then at Miriam and then back at the rest of us standing there. And in the silence, I found myself, in spite of myself, almost wishing him to show mercy to Miriam. I found myself hoping he'd find a way to evade the trap. He didn't hurry, and the silence had a heaviness to it. It seemed to go on and on. He even took a moment to draw something with his finger on the ground. We were all dying to work out what it was, but we couldn't see. And then he spoke. If any of you is without sin, you can be the first to throw a stone at her, he said. And then, as if he'd lost interest in us, he bent down again and resumed drawing on the ground. I was holding my breath. You see, at that point, I was feeling ashamed Ashamed of what we were trying to do, ashamed of myself, ashamed of my colleagues. I knew I couldn't have lived with my conscience if we had stoned Miriam to death. So I was holding my breath, hoping against hope that no one would pick up a rock to hurl at her. And then it happened. Two of my colleagues, Simon and Tobias, 
two of our elders just turned and started to walk away slowly. As soon as they went, I did too, willing all the others to follow us, and they did. Some of our group, the younger men mostly, were muttering angrily as they came away, but most of us came away quietly, thoughtfully. I was so relieved. I knew it was the right outcome. In my heart, I knew that what my colleagues and I had done was every bit as wicked as anything Miriam had done. Then another of my colleagues, Reuben, probably the one I know best and get on with best, tugged at my elbow and gestured that he was going back to where Jesus was, so I went with him. Jesus was still sitting there, drawing in the dust, and the woman was still on her feet, waiting, waiting like she wanted him to say something, waiting like she didn't feel able just to go, like she needed to be dismissed, and the crowd was waiting too, still quiet, as if they knew the drama wasn't quite finished yet. And then Jesus spoke, woman, he said, so tenderly. That really struck me. When my colleague had refused to use her name and had said to Jesus, this woman, it sounded harsh and impersonal. But when Jesus said, woman, you could hear his compassion. Woman, he said, where have your accusers gone? Is no one left to condemn you? That moved me too. The way he invited her to speak, he gave her a voice. No one, sir, she said. It was the first word she had spoken since we dragged her from her bed. And then Jesus spoke again. Neither do I condemn you. Go on home and don't sin like that anymore. And I can't get those words out of my head. He named her sin. He didn't excuse it. He didn't trivialize it. He didn't say her behavior was not sinful. He didn't suggest adultery is okay. Don't sin like that anymore, he said. But he did not condemn her. I do not condemn you, he said. And he spoke with such easy authority, as if he meant that if he did not condemn her, God did not condemn her either, and therefore no one could condemn her. Neither do I condemn you, he said. And do you know what? At that moment, I found myself envying Miriam. I, a scribe and a member of the Sanhedrin, envious of her, an adulterous woman. I wanted him to say that to me. I wanted him to name my sin, to declare to me that he did not condemn me. I wanted to hear that declaration of absolution with authority. And then an extraordinary thing happened. He looked at me. At me, he caught my eye and held my gaze and nodded And in that moment, I knew he knew. He knew my sin. He knew my need of forgiveness. And he was telling me, it's okay, go and sin no more. I do not condemn you. It was a beautiful thing, and it's changed my life. Because that was the moment I became one of his followers. I didn't feel God had left me any choice, really. There are three of us in the Sanhedrin now, well, three that I know of, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and me. We do wonder now how it will end, of course, because many of our colleagues are hostile to Jesus. But I will follow him wherever it leads, because my sense of connection to God 
is even stronger now than it was before. I think because I'm quicker now to recognise my own faults and failings, quicker to confess them with my whole heart, quicker to receive forgiveness, not so quick to pass judgment on other people as I was before. And every day I hear those words in my head, go and sin no more, I do not condemn you.